Hi, everyone. This is Jim McCarty. Welcome you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 41. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end, has two websites archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us at LL Research form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Gary Bean, Director of LL Research, and Austin Bridges, Assistant Director of LL Research, along with myself, husband to the late Carla L. Ruckert, scribe for the Raw Contact, and President of LL Research, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We will be discussing questions that are sent to us from spiritual seekers around the globe. Our replies to these questions are not final or authoritative. Instead, they are generally subjective interpretations stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions that often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. We always ask each who listens to exercise his own discernment and listen for her own resonance in determining what is true. If you'd like to submit a question for the show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Jim McCarty, and we're embarking on a new episode of LL Research Weekly Podcast in the Now. Is everybody here and ready to go? I'm both of those things, and same here. Ah, you guys are ambidextrous already. <laughs> Our first question comes from Andrew via email. And he says that he's curious about the octave. And he says, since Ross spoke comparatively little about the octave, but there's an interesting juxtaposition between question 78.10 and 78.15. In question 78.10, Ross seems to imply a progressive or progress or learning from an octave to octave saying, quote, things known which were the harvest of the previous octave, end quote. Yet in question 78.15, Ross says that, quote, the ways of the octave are without time. That is, there are seven densities in each creation infinitely, end quote. So, with all this in mind, how can the infinite have things known from a previous octave, implying learning and progress, yet the ways of the octave be without time? And then he kind of adds another little end note. I suppose it comes down to this. How can the infinite creator have progress without a concept of time? So, uh, maybe we'll just take it in those two parts of the questions. Uh, Gary, what do you think about it? His first part. My answers pretty much hinges on his note. Um, how can the infinite creator have progress without concept of time? I worked on that. All right. So <laughs> bring so it if, on. Yeah. If if you guys if you want to take a stab at the first part and then I can join in when you tackle the second uh, part. Mine kind of covers both grounds too. So um, go for it. So, um, this, like some of the questions that we are given um, about the raw contact material, is way above my pay grade. But, um, and I had, as is often the case as well, as, as sort of um, very little to give initially. But then, as happens, I started doing research and realized that maybe there is something that could be teased from the raw material. And uh, what I came up with was the concepts of sequence and time and how they are not necessarily one and the same. So uh, I'm going to read some raw quotes and I remove some extraneous material from them. Um, in this quote in 28.6, Ra speaks to space-time and by implication time-space. 
how they come into being out of timelessness. Uh, Don asks, when does individualization of the individualized portion of consciousness come into play? Ra says, you remain carefully in the area of creation itself. In this process, we must further confuse you by stating that the process by which free will acts upon potential intelligent infinity to become focused intelligent energy takes place without space-time, of which you are so aware. The experience or existence of space-time comes into being after the individuation process of logos or love has been completed as with as um, the physical universe has, now it's my paraphrasing, begun to take shape. Uh, Ra goes on to say that in this process, the sun bodies have created, quote, timeless chaos coalescing into planets. And says of the planets that they spend a large amount of first density in a timeless state. The space-time realization being one of the learned teachings of this density of beingness. Uh, thus, we have difficulty answering your question with regard to time and space and their relationship to the original creation, which is not a part of space-time as you understand it. So here Ra is saying that time comes into being after um, the foundation, you might say, of the physical universe is formed. And it's actually part of the lesson of first density uh, to learn, uh, manifest, recognize, become aware of space-time. In 30.16, Ra talks again about space-time emerging out of timelessness. The spiritual density or mass of those more towards the center of your galaxy is known. However, this is due simply to the varying timelessness states during which the planetary spheres may coalesce. This process of space-time beginnings occurring earlier, shall we say, as you approach the center of the galactic spiral. And then in 40.1, Don is asking about one logos ending its octave of experience as it moves through the black hole and emerges on the other side as another logos that begins a new octave. Ra gives a comprehensive reply, but to narrow it down to what's pertinent here, the transition of the octave is a process which may be seen to enter timelessness of an unimaginable nature. To attempt to measure it by your time measures would be useless. Therefore, the concept of moving through the black hole and coming immediately into the next octave misses the portion of this process, which is timeless. Uh, So what my unenlightened mind makes of that is that there is a sequence, you might say, of evolution. That sequence creates time and space for a period in order to create an environment of growth and learning but then it undoes or reabsorbs time and the great sequence moves on. Um, in a few different places in the raw material, Ra describes a, quote, rhythm of reality that involves outward and inward movement like a heartbeat and operates in a cyclical fashion. And to my mind, this speaks also of a sequence which does not depend on time. And to save um, your time and ours... I, I'm going to nix reading those, but they are uh, 27.6, 28.16, and 29.18. And then turn back to our host, Jim. Well, that was really good, Gary. In fact, it was even timeless. 
<laughs> I doubt so too, thanks. Austin, what have you to say about time and space and the octave? Um, well, I think that was great as well. And uh, I think my answer takes a sort of different approach. I think Gary's was probably more on the nose of Andrew's question in uh, addressing the idea of how timelessness and prog progression can exist. And uh, before I start mine, um, I want to relate something to Gary's. I remember uh, Safira Vox talking about cosmology. He's a good friend of ours who has um, done some research of the raw material that we respect a lot. And when he discusses the idea of Ra's cosmology, where there's the first distortion, second distortion, and all that, um, he talks about how these things are sequential, but they're not uh, temporally sequential. They are logically sequential. So they aren't necessarily sequential in the way that we would think about them happening in time, but there is some aspect of them. There were one is more primal and the second is, uh, you know, secondary to that first one without the idea of time. So I think uh, the term logically sequential rather than temporally sequential is um, a good term to use here. And I think that kind of touches on what Gary was talking about. But um, I think that this concept of being without time is kind of something that is almost impossible to discuss from our perspective, especially since we're veiled in a reality which severely limits our perception of time. We see it as sort of a one-direction, uh, very stuck and uh, slow process. Uh, even when we find a sort of timelessness within our meditation, we have to eventually come out of that state and consider the sequence of events that led to our ability to experience that timelessness. And in order to, uh, or in talking about the octaves, um, we're discussing this vast micro macrocosm. And uh, if we take the universe to be somewhat of a fractal in nature, we can maybe bring this perspective down to something closer to our own awareness to help us grasp this. So Andrew's talking about uh, the progress from octave to octave, uh, but I think that in other places in the material, we can kind of relate that uh, and make it more relatable as a progress from density to density. Because after all, Ra does talk about everything existing in true simultaneity, whether it's the octaves or the densities themselves. And before discussing the concept of progression from octave to octave, Ra already boggled my mind in a similar vein by discussing the nature of the higher self and how it, in a sense, is ourselves existing at the future, uh, at a future point in time. And yet, from our th uh, third density point of view and our progression, the mind-body-spirit... I just lost my place in my writing, and I'm going to edit that part out. Um, from our point of view, we have access to this higher self that is at this future point in time. And Ra talks about this in uh, 37.6. The higher self is a manifestation given to the late sixth density mind-body-spirit complex as a gift from its future selfness. The mid-seventh density's last action before turning towards the allness of the creator and gaining spiritual mass is to give this resource to the sixth density self, moving as you measure time in the stream of time. This self, the mind-body-spirit complex of late sixth density, has then the honor duty of using both the experiences of its total living bank or memory of experienced thoughts and actions 
and using the resource of the mind-body-spirit complex totality left behind as a type of infinitely complex thought form. In this way, you may see yourself, your higher self, and your mind-body-spirit complex totality as three points in a circle. The only distinction is that of your time-space continuum. All are the same being. So consider that for a moment, that the mid-seventh density gifts the higher self to the self, and this higher self is the same higher self that we call upon for guidance. And uh, we may call upon this higher self as we evolve through the densities, eventually arriving at seventh density. But that self that arrives at seventh density is the same self which has already gifted us the higher self that we call upon here in third density. So even now, here in this third density, we can get sort of a taste or an experience of this sort of wacky timelessness that boggles our minds because uh, we are existing simultaneously and uh, can interact with a future aspect of ourselves. Uh, and yet, it's clear that here in third density, we progress. We know that there are ways we can grow in order to progress through the densities and through future densities. Uh, and we can all recall a point in our own journey where we've had a breakthrough and grew from our own catalyst. And we see clearly the nature of progression from our perspective, despite the fact that we know that, or at least what we know from Ra that we exist in true simultaneity or uh, without time in a sense. So I think that the same idea can be applied to the octaves. It's true that they might be without time, but there seems to be something significant about um, sequential uh, building upon uh, previous things that is necessary for the creator to have an experience. And this progression, it might be illusory, much like our own experience of time, but this illusion seems necessary to fulfill the creator's desire to know itself. And I also think it's a good thing to note that Ra mentions in this uh, very session that Andrew is referencing in session 78 that they know very little about the previous octaves. And they've called, or about octaves in general, and they have called the octave a mystery which they do not plumb. And they stress the importance of the beginning and ending of our beings as being in mystery. So... Uh, this very topic of the octaves, I think, is uh, intentionally clad in mystery, even for Ra, and uh, thus our own thoughts can really only go so far in trying to wrap our minds around how this really works. And uh, at that point, I'll pass it back to Jim. Uh, what are your thoughts, Jim? Uh, good job. You guys really did a lot of good research here and came up with some uh, very enlightening information. Um, I think Ra is trying to make the point here that the... Uh, Octaves do all have seven densities, and apparently the octaves are infinite in number. And also, they said that um, the entities from the octave to come, this is the part that blew my mind, are the ones that are the, during a harvest, they provide the emissions of light that determines the harvestability of each third density entity. So these entities from the octave to come, which suggests that they haven't existed yet, yet they exist, and come back here and help us. So I think this gives us an idea of how time is very flexible and fluid and maybe not exactly what we think it is. Um, every density has a certain length of time, shall we say. The first density starts off in timelessness, which is a way to start boggling your mind right away. But then when the scroll of time unrolls, then 
the first density can be seen to be about two billion years long, which again, two billion years long, as far as we're concerned, might as well be infinity. <laughs> so the second density is the longest density. It's 4.6 billion years. So there's a supposed time period there that again is immense and unimaginable. Our third density, we can begin to imagine. We've got something to hold on to here, 75,000 years, you know, only 75,000 years. Fourth density, 30 million. Fifth density, 50 million. Sixth density, 75 million. So each density has a time period to it in space time. However, in space time, we are apparently able to move around in space fairly easily. We can go from here to Chicago and over to Los Angeles and back and so forth. But we do it in sequence, in the past, a present, and the future. Yesterday we traveled so far, today we travel so far, and tomorrow, same thing. But in time-space, for any density, it seems like time is the quality that is flexible, and we can move about in time, and we're relatively fixed in the same sense in the time-space, in space, as we are in time in the third density, space-time. Got all that? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, what we have in time-space for every density, including third, is what could be called an eternal now. There really isn't the concept of time as we know it. There is the ability, however, to move about the universe in what Ra calls zero time to the entity who is uh, totally balanced. The universe is open and free and there's no um, bar against travel, as Ra said. So. And Ra also said something um, about our harvest as whether or not they were going to be able to continue their work to balance the distortions of the law of one for which they felt responsible as they engaged with the Egyptians and the Egyptians distorted their message. They said, we are not a part of time, so we are available at any of your times to continue this work. So that's kind of interesting. Any of our times, our times are almost up. All <laughs> are they? Uh, <laughs> so I think that even though the concept of time, as we think we know it, or hope to know it, exists throughout all the densities in the octave, yet there is this quality of timelessness that is also the, the basic quality and the more real reality, shall we say. I think that space-time nature of each density is for the purpose of learning the lessons at a more rapid pace, of, of progressing of doing things, of getting out there and pretending that we're not quite one with the Creator yet, so what do we do to get to be one? And yet, in the time-space spirit world, or however, you know, the immaterial world, the invisible world, which is a part of every density, we are more at one, and we don't have such a need to do things, to act, to be seemingly separate from the Creator, so, in that statement, I will leave you all. Any final questions or, <laughs> or uh, comments? Um, it was really fruitful um, listening to you muse about the nature and function of time. And the, the notion of sequence just... Um, Imagining existence outside of time is already impossible enough, but then imagining sequence, uh, events, um, moving from event A to event B to event C, and how the nature of cause and effect works without time is just 
It's um, our our minds are a product of space time. They're hardwired to think in those terms. They see through those terms, and I think you really have to get um, deep in a contemplative state that kind of transcends uh, ordinary mind to really consider this question. But yeah, it it undoes my mind. And um, on the question of octaves and densities, there's also a thought that uh, I've considered before. Ra uses the term octave for the sub-densities of this density. They said the octave of third density once before. And um, it makes you think that any grouping of seven, with the eighth being the first of the new grouping, can't might be called an octave. And they said of any given density that there are infinite subdensities within that density. So um, this third density is an octave um, as it consists of seven subdensities. And within one of those subdensities is seven more sub-subdensities, thus um, an, an octave within an octave, and on it goes down. So why can it not go up that way? Um, in that maybe a grouping of seven octaves is uh, an, a super octave, you might say. Who knows um, if it goes infinitely up as well as it does um, down and, and as Austin was saying, a, a fractal sort of pattern. So... Anyway, my my mind is creaking and groaning at those thoughts. <laughs> um, it makes me consider the word timelessness and maybe that Ra used that word um, in a way that we might not fully grasp. Um, just the idea of something being timeless uh, and what that means when Ra says that. Uh, and I think there's something else in the nature of our own reality that might be able to help us understand this too. And um, so we can think of our own progression as individuals as sort of a spiral upward. And some relate that to what Ra calls the upward spiraling light. Uh, and you might think of one uh, spin of that spiral as like a cycle maybe, uh, perhaps uh where the light is traveling in the same pattern repeatedly, but it's also moving upwards. Uh, So it's never in the same place, but it's going over the same cycle. And it's the same with our own progression. I think that a lot of people on the spiritual path have found that there's sort of a cycle to our spiritual progression. And the overall template of our journey uh, doesn't seem to change. It's what um, Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. And in Law of One terminology, you might relate it to the cycles of the archetypes. The archetypes are consistent throughout all of our experience. Yet with each moment of growth we experience, that uh, cycle, which never changes itself, also never seems to be the same. And we may see things through this, the same things throughout our entire lifetime, but uh, always with new perspectives, and so long as our perspectives are growing. So the cycle itself is uh, timeless. It never, ever changes within our spiritual journey, and yet it still builds upon everything that came before it. So um, I think that that's another uh, uh, something that can help us grasp the idea of something being timeless within our own reality. There is this consistent thing in our, on our spiritual paths that uh, really doesn't ever change, but also never seems to be the same at the same time. Yeah, I think uh, 
Jim used the word the eternal now. I think that's one of the best pointers to it. And Eckhart Tolle spends um, most of his teaching uh, leading the seeker back to precisely that, the, mm-hmm. the eternal now. Well, that's all, all of my thoughts. <laughs> well, we've begun and ended in mystery, so good, <laughs> good job, guys. Oh, I hear Pickwick out in the hall. Uh, okay, our next question comes from Travis via email. Maybe I should go let him in, then he won't make that noise. I'll be right back. Okay, our second question comes from Travis via email, and he says, As you know, our perception drastically alters our potential to be the masters of our own reality or the servant to it. But how does this work with a large group or whole world of mind-body-spirit complexes? Austin, what say you there? Well, um, first of all, I think it's important to determine uh, what Travis means when he says to be masters of our own reality or to be servants to it and how our perception affects that. And I think this is a very common idea in the New Age community and among channel material that our perceptions create the whole of our reality. And I have seen some of these beliefs tend towards the idea that our reality itself is completely malleable and shapeable by our perceptions alone. Uh, For example, if we are able to somehow alter our perception enough to perceive an elephant in the corner of the room, then an elephant will be literally in the corner of the room. And I think I agree with the sentiment behind the power of our perceptions, but I take a different approach than that sort of literal altering our reality. Uh, So I won't make any statements on how exactly our perceptions might alter our reality, but I do think it's obvious that our perceptions can influence our ability to uh, affect and exist in our reality as we truly desire to, and that would be what Ra calls being co-creators. So um, for us to grasp this concept and start to examine our perceptions, we go through this process of clearing distortions to allow us to see things from a common standpoint, and that standpoint is love, uh, according to Ra. Um, Essentially, the goal and the result of the process of growth is to view all things as love, thus acting as agents of love and harmony in uh, our lives as we live it, and thus being, as Travis puts it, masters. And so that's the angle that I would see his statement about being masters of our reality from is uh, our ability for us to wield our perceptions, learn from our perceptions, and eventually alter our perceptions in order to see things as love. Uh, So how that works as a group, and I'm not sure if I fully understand Travis's question, but um, I took an angle and I ran with it. So uh, firstly, I think that a group's level of awareness or ability to perceive their reality in a positive light would be determined by a sort of average awareness of the individuals within that group. 
and modern developmental theories uh, view correlations between both personal evolution and collective evolution. And there are various stages of evolution which correlate with Ra's system of energy centers. Um, I've always viewed Ra's system of energy centers as sort of a, a model of developmental psychology. And individuals, as well as societies, go through all of these stages. And it should be noted that each stage is not necessarily distinct or separate from a previous stage, but it is simply a growth of that previous stage. Much like each energy center is honored in Ra's explanations of our energy system, and each stage of evolution continues to have influence uh, in through the later stages. Uh, and that's not to say that individuals would then be limited by the collective uh, evolution, but I do think that there's an obvious influence and dynamic between the individual and the society. And if a society is, uh, say, within Green Ray, those growing up within that society will have more inspiration and more catalyst available to them, uh, which allows them to more quickly approach the level from which that society is working. And if society holds strong ideals and beliefs centering around a particular level, it might be more difficult for individuals to grow past that uh, particular level. So while any individual may be a master of their own evolution, I do think there are strong uh, influences from the environment and from social aspects of living within a society which is at a particular stage of growth, uh, and that will obviously affect the individual's own perception there. And individuals themselves can directly affect their society and culture, sharing their views and making their marks on those around them, helping that society to progress. So I suppose, in uh, fewer words, uh, perhaps the more people within a large group of entities that are aware of how their perceptions affect their reality, the more likely it is that the group will approach similar levels and uh, they will view their group catalyst in the light of love rather than other distortions as they grow. And that natural progression will have them sharing the perception of all things being love. Uh, since we're all essentially on the same path where we clear distortions which uh, stop us from viewing things as love, eventually a society will be able to master their perceptions in that way as seeing things as love perhaps in fourth density when we are a social memory complex. Um, so that's what I got from Travis's question, and I hope that that was what he was sort of asking about. Um, passing it back to you, Jim. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know exactly what he meant there. There's a little bit of doubt. Uh, Gary, what did you come up with when you looked at his question? Gary? <laughs> I think you're uh, uh, muted. Yeah, Gary. I'm sorry. I was replying and didn't realize I had, was muted. So I was saying, um, uh, likewise, there was some confusion on my part regarding the terminology, but um, I don't have as um, comprehensive and in-depth reply as Austin did, but I just kind of took a, a broad swipe at it. <clears throat> and on the question of um, how in general... Uh, a collective creates a shared perception or a, um, a multiplicity of perceptions within the collective that may or may not be within a harmony. So I focused on the attention because I think that from a, the standpoint of the conscious mind at least, um, it is the attention that tends to energize, create, 
and manifest one's reality, both internally and externally. Um, not to the extent, as Austin was describing, of um, thinking that there is an elephant in the room and uh, there is an elephant in the room. It's not um, quite that um, magical or direct or immediate and so forth. But um, that is upon what one places their their attention that tends to become their reality uh so i would imagine that with a group the mechanics are more or less the same just on a much larger scale uh groups experience the same emotions and perceptions as do individuals including compassion anxiety dread elation confusion clarity desire to harm desire to serve desire to love desire to compete cooperate so forth um so, and whereas an individual can be divided in conflict and out of, out of harmony within themselves, so can a collective be divided in conflict and in disharmony among its constituent members. A collective is probably more prone to be in disharmony as each constituent entity is operating under the law of confusion, and that confusion is amplified the more ent- that entities are added to the mix. Uh, indeed, each person added to a collective complicates the dynamics even further, perhaps even exponentially so. Um, so, uh, I think there's a certain mathematics to it. Uh, Ra mentions the mechanism of the calling. They say that the law of squares is what determines whether and how a call is answered. Uh, that law involves some formulas or math whereby the energy or power of those making the call is squared and when that power reaches a point whereby it overcomes the integrated resistance to the call then the call can be answered so perhaps there are formulas and numbers statistics and math that help explain how a collective manifests anything whether it be how a mental climate is creative or how a collective affects its planetary sphere or what values a society focuses on or what projects a society completes. Um, Perhaps this is connected also to the ideas of critical mass and or the so-called hundredth monkey effect. Um, And I believe that a large group, even to the point of an entire planet, can ultimately affect the greatest change when harnessing the faculties of will and faith. Uh, unifying and concentrating the two. Consider 3.10 when Don says, then if an individual is totally informed with respect to the law of one and lives and is the law of one, such things as the building of a pyramid by direct mental effort would be commonplace. Is that what I am to understand? Uh, Ra says, you are incorrect in that there is a distinction between the individual power through the law of one and the combined or societal memory complex mind-body-spirit understanding of the law of one. In the first case, only the one individual purified of all flaws could move a mountain. In the case of mass understanding of unity, each individual may contain an acceptable amount of distortion and yet the mass mind could move mountains. Now, Ra is alluding to processes that we would describe as extraordinary, that is, uh, using consciousness alone to create changes in space-time. But there are many other levels of um, reality creation 
uh, among a group. And um, Austin uh, did a good job covering that ground in terms of how the individual relates to the group and vice versa, how the individual can both transcend the group and inform the group in so doing, or the group can uh, uplift or keep down uh, from a chakra perspective, uh, the individual. But anyway, um, how about you, Jim? Well, I had a little different take on it, and I might be wrong. Uh, but I was looking at his question as his ability either to become a master of his reality or a servant to it. And I kind of got the feeling like he would rather be the master of the reality than the servant to it. <laughs> And uh, that's where I might be going wrong. But uh, what I would suggest is that if that is the correct, you know, if anybody has that kind of question, I'll talk to that. Um, <laughs> I think the only thing that we really master is our own journey of growth. I don't think that we have any real hope and shouldn't have any real desire to master anything beyond our own growth in a spiritual sense. Uh, we don't really want to be masters of anybody else. Mastering others is a negative polarity, mastering or controlling others. So I think that uh, what we're shooting for here is to be able to master our ability to use catalyst on a daily basis. Whatever our pre-incarnative choices are will be filtered through our subconscious mind into our conscious mind. We will look at what happens to us during the day through those lenses. And as we see the catalyst developing, then hopefully we will attempt to balance that catalyst so that overall, We'll begin to open up each energy center, move higher and higher until we get to the heart. And at that point, we will become able to be harvested because we will be aware of the power and reality of love. And the love that we seek at the heart level then is that which we begin to share with others. And at that point, as we have mastered our own beingness and our own ability to move through the evolution of our own mind, body, spirit complex, then we become the servants of all. As it says in the Bible, if you would become the greatest, then you must serve all. You must become the least and serve everyone. And I think that's what we're shooting for. But then when he gets on to how does this work with a large group or whole world? Well, I think that uh, if my perception there was, uh, we'll just assume I was correct in my perception of what he was talking about. And we'll, we'll uh, extrapolate it then to a large group. And a large group, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult because then, it takes each person in the group working on him or herself in this concentrated fashion in order to make uh, it possible to cooperate with the group in a sense of um, what Rob was talking about in session uh, 65 about uh, the various possibilities that, that Edgar Casey spoke of for the, uh, the planet uh, shifting its poles and being able to graduate a harvest and so many you know, the disasters happening because we were not successful for thousands of years and being harmonious together. And Ross said, but there is still one possibility, there's that, that one chance that in one fine, strong moment of inspiration, could your planet polarize in a positive sense? And Ross said, yes, it is ever possible. Not probable, but it is ever possible. So I think that groups can do amazing things, but it would require that each entity within the group be of like mind. We would basically have to have uh, a real good start on forming a social memory complex where the entire group would be focused upon seeking in the same direction. Uh, they would point the compass in that direction, and that would you know, very likely be a service to others and helping those who did not uh, have the same advantages they did to um, become aware of the one creator, to become aware of the power of love, to transform, and, and to become personally transformed. And 
to be able to do it as a group. So that was the take I had on it. Uh, anybody else have any comments on that take or your take or any take? Do we have any takers? I do think uh, your answer took a different meaning from his question, but it's still related. I think the idea of being a master or a servant to our own perception, um, we interpreted those things differently in that uh, being a servant is essentially what a positive entity would be striving for in serving others and essentially uh, living their entire life for serving others uh, at some point in time. Um, but uh, what I took from Travis's meaning, which may or may not be what he intended, would be uh, to be masters of our own reality, would be able to consciously choose to be that uh, serve servant, to be able to uh, master our perceptions in order to then serve. And being a servant of our reality, being um, beholden to uh, what I guess would be negative perceptions and um, held back by our reality because we are perceiving it in a certain way and being unable to serve in the way that we want to. Um, but that might not be what he meant. Uh, but that's the angle that I took it from. Uh, but I think that your question or your answer is still very relevant to his question and uh, both Gary and I are my answers. Okay, Gary, how about you? Any final question or answer? Comment? Yeah, I love that you, <clears throat> so this is a bit away from the microphone. I love that um, you took mastery and then connected it to the concept of being a servant and said when you become a master, then you become a servant of all. That was um uh, well done. And then you said, uh, rack of my brain, you said something about um, the, the one fine moment of inspiration and, and the Casey and probabilities. And there was something in there that I wanted to reply to, that I wanted to connect to the law of one. Uh, is, was there something else that you said in there, Jim? <laughs> well, I think I said a lot of things. That will... Can you just repeat your whole answer again? <laughs> Oh, man, I had something else really salient to contribute, but it's it's just gone. Then, um, no, no, no more for me. <laughs> okay, uh, we've pretty much gone past our limit already. Do you want to try the final question, since it might be a real short one? <laughs> <laughs> we can if you want to. Um, let's see my reply. Yeah, my reply is uh, just three raw quotes. Okay. Mine would probably be a ditto of Gary's, I'm guessing. So. <laughs> well, mine will be even shorter than that. Okay. The last question is from Ameripal via Bringforth. When you fully observe all of your distortions and balances and balance the chakras and become a crystallized being, do you experience any more distortions or blockages when the any catalyst comes through or when you see or acknowledge a distortion? Gary? <laughs> So, in a way, this kind of connects to the previous one. Um, but the type of state of uh, evolution that Ameripal is describing, um, I linked to what Ra calls the fully activated being. Um, and in 40.14, Ra says, The fully activated being is rare. Much emphasis is laid upon the harmonies and balances of individuals. To fully activate each energy center is the mastery of few, for each center has a variable speed of rotation or activity. The important observation to be made once all necessary centers are activated to the minimal degree necessary is the harmony and balance between those energy centers. Um, 
And uh, in 47.7, uh, Rod describes the crystallized entity. And uh, they, Don asks, what did you mean by that? And Rod says, we have used this particular term because it has a fairly precise meaning in your language. When a crystalline structure is formed of your physical material, the elements present each molecule the elements present in each molecule are bonded in a regularized fashion with the elements in each other molecule. Thus, the structure is regular and, when fully and perfectly crystallized, has certain properties. It will not splinter or break. It is very strong without effort. And it is radiant, traducing light into beautiful refraction, giving pleasure to the eye of many. Um, and then I see this needs commentary, but I'll just read the uh, raw quotes. In 42.10, Don says, how can a person know when he is unswayed by an emotionally charged situation if he is repressing the flow of emotions or if he is in balance and truly unswayed? And Ra says, we have spoken to this point. Therefore, we shall briefly iterate that to the balance entity, no situation has an emotional charge, but is simply a situation like any other in which the entity may or may not observe an opportunity to be of service. The closer an entity comes to this attitude, the closer an entity is to balance. I would recommend those three for Maripal to consider. <laughs> Back to you, Jim. Oh, that was really good. Uh, Austin, how about you? Um, yeah, basically the exact same thing Gary said. Uh, I just had one other quote that was the same as Gary's, basically. Don asked, would a perfectly balanced entity feel an emotional response when being attacked by the other self? Uh, and Ross said, I am Ra. This is correct. The response is love. And they said that about any situation where an entity was perfectly balanced. So uh, I would say to Amir Paul that... Um, what you would acknowledge or see in any situation, if you're perfectly crystallized and balanced, is a situation of love. Oh. That's it. Okay, well, that's, that's all I could say to you. I mean, ditto and ditto. Because, um, you know, we obviously have not experienced this yet. We can just uh, take these few little quotes from Ra and, and uh, give them as examples of what might be the truth. And I think that's probably it. Since love is the basic creative function and force of the universe uh, if we see anything other than that then we're still working on catalyst okay any final comments not for me for my okay well folks you have been listening to ll research's weekly podcast in the now if you've enjoyed the show please visit our websites llresearch.org and bringforth.org thanks so much for listening and a special thank you to those who submitted questions if you'd like to send us a question for us for our next show, please read the instructions on our page at www.antlerresearch.org forward slash podcast. New episodes are published to the weekly archive website every Wednesday at 1 p.m. We love you all, folks. We hope you know that. Always remember it. And have a wonderful week. Cheerio.